Thank you for downloading from the Great Commission Society. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. You can find out more about our global ministry and team at www.greatcommissionsociety.com. In the Washington DC metro station on a cold January morning in 2007, a man with a violin played six Bach pieces for about 45 minutes. During that time, approximately 2,000 people went through the station, most of them on their way to work. After three minutes, a middle-aged man noticed there was a musician playing. He slowed his pace and stopped for a few seconds before hurrying to meet his schedule. After four minutes, the violinist received his first dollar. A woman threw money in the hat and without stopping continued to walk. Six minutes later, a young man leaned against the wall to listen to him, then looked at his watch and started to walk again. After ten minutes, a three-year-old boy stopped but his mother tugged him along hurriedly. The kid stopped to look at the violinist again but the mother pushed hard as the child continued to walk, turning his head all the time. This action was repeated by several other children. Every parent, without exception, forced their children to move on quickly. After 45 minutes, the musician played continuously. Only six people stopped and listened for a short while. About 20 gave money but continued to walk at their normal pace. The man collected a total of $32. After one hour, he finished playing and silence took over. No one noticed, no one applauded, nor was there any recognition. No one knew this, but the violinist was Joshua Bell, one of the greatest musicians in the world. He played one of the most intricate pieces ever written with a violin worth $3.5 million. Two days before the Metro Station performance, Joshua Bell sold out a theatre in Boston where each seat averaged $100. Now that's a true story. Joshua Bell playing incognito in the Metro Station was organised by the Washington Post as part of a social experiment about perception, taste and people's priorities. Now, the questions raised from this in a commonplace environment at an inappropriate hour, do we perceive beauty? Do we stop to appreciate it? Do we recognise talent in an unexpected context? If we don't have even a moment to stop and listen to one of the best musicians in the world playing some of the finest music ever written with one of the most beautiful instruments ever made, how many other things are we missing? We read in John chapter 1 verses 10 to 12, He was in the world, and though the world was made by him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus Christ continues to be the most significant figure in history. We know how he's viewed today, but how was he viewed in his culture? His words and his methods were unlike any others, both then and now. What was it that made him so different? How did he challenge the views and the values around him? Hello and welcome to our GCS podcast with author and evangelist Tony Anthony. As Jesus taught the tax collectors and sinners gathered around him, the Pharisees began to mutter to themselves about his open association with those deemed unclean according to the Jewish religious code. The parable of the lost sheep was Jesus' response. The religious leaders of the day had been indifferent toward people who were lost. Jesus used the parables of the lost sheep and lost coin to illustrate how their response was wrong, especially when compared to how they would have responded towards recovering something of far less value. Jesus pointed out that the one thing that matters most to God is the lost, and when the lost are found, even one of them, all heaven rejoices and throws a party. There was more joy over one sinner coming to Jesus than over 99 people being right where they're supposed to be with God. If people matter this much to God, 
Shouldn't they matter this much to us? Shouldn't we be willing to give everything needed in order to reach them? What is needed to reach the lost? Let's join Tony as he takes a closer look at the way God responds and searches for the lost and examines how we might gain the right perspective on evangelism. I've covered over a hundred countries and scores of meetings and I've never sensed a time as uncertain as the times that we find ourselves living in right now. And a common question that I'm often asked is what is required to be able to reach the lost effectively? You know, people ask the questions, how do I reach Muslims? You know, what do I say to my intellectual friend who's a scientist? You know, what good resources are there to understand Hinduism better? You know, how can I speak to my complacent agnostic friend? What's the best approach to reach people in the New Age movement? And most weeks, literally, people ask me questions like these. And and to be honest with you, most days I ask myself very similar ones. A great way to start is to go right back to basics. And if we look at this amazing parable that we're going to read right now in Luke 15, I think we can glean some important characteristics that we need to have if we're going to reach the lost effectively. Let's read from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 10. The power of the lost sheep. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered together to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. When I tell you that in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. These are such powerful verses, but it's somewhat troubling to study this text because the more you study the passage, the more you begin to realise how the church has not been responding to the lost. And certainly not in the way Jesus taught that we should. You know, the message is a challenge to us today, but it's a, the message of the Bible, and as such, is not meant to condemn us, but it's meant to change us. And sometimes that requires that we be made uncomfortable. In these two parables, something of value is lost. Something of value is lost. In the stories, the thing lost, whether a sheep or a coin, it has monetary value. Nobody, including the religious leaders who valued material things, would ignore such a loss. Rather, they would put every effort into finding it and would rejoice when they did find it. Now, if this is true about things that are lost, you know, things, shouldn't it also be the same for people who are spiritually lost and then found? People being so much more important as well. Well, the term lost refers to those who are not Christians, to those who are outside of the household of God, but whom God desires so much to come home. You can see in the story of the prodigal son, where the father says about the son who has repented and returned home, he says in verse 31, he was lost and is found. And clearly it is those that are spiritually lost who are represented by the lost things in these illustrations, in these stories. But do you not think that we should respond to people who are lost in the same way, or even a greater way than we should do with lost things? 
Shouldn't we exhibit the same efforts and perseverance in searching for them? Shouldn't we be filled with joy at them being found? I believe that the point of this passage is primarily to remind Christians of how they should respond to the loss. You could also interpret these parables as primarily illustrating how God responds and searches for the lost. But even if that is the case, the message remains essentially the same, because if God responds a certain way to those who are lost, then it's obvious that Christians should follow his example. Now that we've had just a very brief summary overview of these 10 verses, I just want to just go over them very briefly, verse by verse, where I'll share with you three things that I feel are needed in order for us to be able to reach the lost. You know, the first thing needed is found in the setting that the powers were given. And, you know, there are two things that are needed to reach the lost uh, and that are found in the parables themselves. Now, just again, looking over those first two verses. You know, the first thing needed for reaching the lost is compassion. You know, Jesus had the tax collectors and sinners gathering around him. These are lost people, right? You know, these are lost people who are not running from Jesus, but now we see them running to Jesus. You know, they were not avoiding him or ignoring him or even being hostile towards him. Not at this point in, in, the, in the timeline. No, verse 1 says that they were gathering around to hear him. Now, tell me this, why were sinners so willing and even eager to listen to Jesus? It certainly wasn't because Jesus had an easy message that tickled their ears. It wasn't because Jesus compromised on sin and said that everything that they were doing was acceptable. No way. They weren't gathering around Jesus because he was putting on some sensationalistic show of signs and wonders. No, at this point in Luke's narrative, the emphasis is on Jesus' teaching. You know, miracles are hardly even mentioned at this point. So why do the lost seek out Jesus rather than run from him? I believe the answer is his compassion. Jesus loved them and he showed that love with a compassionate uh, way, you know, instead of a condemning way. The Bible says in verse 2 that Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them. And one of the definitions for the Greek words translated as welcomes in this verse is to receive as a friend. And this was Jesus' attitude towards those who are lost in sin. Jesus welcomed them. You know, he was compassionate and accepting of them, despite their sins and their faults and their mess. You know, he was a friend. He wasn't a foe. Jesus had an attitude that lost people were attracted to. Do do we? Do you? You know, for us as individuals and as a church to reach people, you know, we're going to have to show and have that same love and acceptance. The first thing needed for reaching the lost has got to be compassion. You know, if you can picture this in your mind, a challenging illustration would be a traffic accident. You know, at the scene of any accidents, there are three different groups of people, generally speaking, each with a completely different response towards those involved in the actual accident itself. The first group will be the bystanders, you know, the onlookers. They're pretty curious and they're watching to see what happens. And, you know, they've got little active involvement in the actual accidents and, and, and the solution of it. The second group is the police officers. Now, their response is to investigate the cause of the accidents, to assign blame and to give out appropriate warnings and punishments and so on. The third group is the paramedics. Now, they're the people usually, you know, most welcomed by those involved in any accident. 
They couldn't care less whose fault the accident was, and they do not engage in lecturing um, people on bad driving habits. Their response is simply to help those who are hurt. They bandage wounds, they free trapped people, they may give words of encouragement, they'll be there to hold somebody's hand. So you've got three different groups of people. One, it's uninvolved. The other one is assigning blame and assessing punishment. And the, uh, the third one is helping the hurting. So my question to you now, those of you that are listening, which group are you in? You know, when it comes to reaching the lost and the hurting, we're going to be in one of these three groups. We'll either be uninvolved and letting others do the work all the time, or we're going to be condemning people for their foolish behaviour, saying things like, well, it's your own fault that you're in that mess. You know, if you've been going to church, etc., etc., and doing things like, you know, you should have, then that, you may ne- this may never have happened. Or we'll be concentrating on helping those who are lost and hurting. I really hope that we'll all find ourselves, you know, in that third group, you know, showing compassion to people. Sadly to say, much of the church today is responding to the lost like the police officer instead of the paramedics. And this is what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law did. They were more interested in condemning and criticising sinners than in showing compassion. The same attitudes is sometimes seen in the church today, you know. We're rightfully upset, of course, about the current state of moral values, whether it's what the latest issue on abortion or the homosexual agenda or, you know, immoral entertainment in society today or, or, or other things, so many things. And, you know, yes, it's fine and appropriate to be concerned about some of these issues, many of these issues, all of these issues. But we must be careful that our concern about these issues does not turn into condemnation towards the lost. The lost have never flocked to hear those who are condemning and they they never will listen to us if that's the attitude we're going to have. Please remember the first thing needed for reaching the lost has got to be compassion. The second thing needed for reaching the lost is effort. You know, many years ago, um, when our children were, well, really small, you know, we were at a children's summer camp. And when my eldest son, um, who was much younger at the time, he was, uh, his name's Ethan, um, he was involved in a slightly scary incident that happens to us as a family. So one of our outings took us to the seaside. And with the responsibility of other people's children, we were as alert as possible and, and thorough as possible in making sure all the children were both safe and accounted for. And in doing so, we'd taken our eyes off our own son for a moment or two. And we noticed at one point that he and his friend Joshua, who was a similar age, were not to be seen. Now, Joshua is the son of a fellow uh, leader um, who's also very good friends of ours, um, who are also running the summer camp. And at first, of course, we were all very calm about the whole situation, you know, because we we thought that, well, they must have just run ahead uh, to play on the seashore on the sand. But soon we realised that neither of them were anywhere to be seen. And now we began to grow a little frantic. You know, our hearts began to accelerate and we yelled out, Ethan, Joshua, you know, their names to the top of our voices, but there was no response. We couldn't see them anywhere. And at that point, our love for them compelled us to make every effort to find them, including leaving the whole group in the hands of the other leaders and running along the shore from bay to bay, doing everything that we could to find them. 
you know, I never said, well, I lost one child, but we've got another one, so not to worry. No, every child matters. Ethan mattered enough to give everything we had towards finding him. Eventually, after what seemed like an eternity of searching, but in reality it was only probably a few minutes, we did find Ethan and Joshua in the next bay playing in the mud. They were playing happily, oblivious to our search. Now here's the point. It took efforts to find Ethan and Joshua, and it will take that same kind of diligent seeking for us to reach the lost. Now, in these two parables, Jesus emphasizes the efforts that went into finding the lost. In the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus said that the shepherd would leave the 99 sheep in the open country and go after the lost sheep. In the parable of the lost coin, the woman lights a lamp, sweeps the whole house, and searches carefully for the lost coin, according to verse 8. So, in both cases, the thing that was lost had to be sought after with great effort. The shepherds didn't wait for the lost sheep to wander home, and the woman didn't wait for the lost coin just to turn up. In our Christian lives and in the church, it sometimes seems that we do the opposite. We tend to wait for the lost to come to us. We're passive rather than active. We're waiting for people to come to Christ instead of putting effort into bringing them to Christ. I know that I've been guilty of doing this myself. I want people to be saved, but haven't gone out searching for the lost with great effort at times. You know, this has to change if we're to reach the lost in the way Jesus did. So how do we put the principle into practice? You know, what do you and I need to do in order to be following Jesus' instructions about giving effort to reaching the lost? Well, there are several things we can do. First, a significant part of our prayers should be for the lost. Secondly, making every effort means that a significant part of our home church ministry should be directed towards reaching the lost. I know that we must also be careful to dedicate a significant part of ministry towards discipling those who are already Christians. But nevertheless, this is no excuse for not seeking the lost as Jesus instructed us to. And thirdly, making every effort to reach the lost means that we must be willing to make outreach a significant part of our personal and church spending as well. Um, You know, this is one area where the church needs to improve a lot more. Some churches do not even have an evangelism budget. Others have one, but spend it all on the wrong things. These are all practical things we can do to apply this principle that Jesus has shared on reaching the lost. And while it's important that the church corporately makes every effort to reach the lost, the most important thing you and I need to do in reaching the lost is to do our best to share Jesus with all those who we come in contact with. The third thing needed to reach the lost is persistence. In both these examples, Jesus notes specifically that the person continued seeking after the lost item until he or she found it. In other words, Jesus seems to be pointing out that persistence was a needed quality for success. After all, lost sheep among spacious fields and hills and lost coins on a dirty floor would not have easily or quickly be found. In the same way, with reaching the lost, it is not easy to reach people's hearts so that they receive Jesus. It is not usually the case that our first efforts meet with success. Sometimes it takes years and years of persistence, but we should not be discouraged or give up. If a sheep or coin was valuable enough to persistently search for, then people who are spiritually lost are too valuable to give up on. Following an exhilarating performance at New York's Carnegie Hall, celebrated classical cellist Yo-Yo Ma went home, slept, and awoke the next day exhausted and rushed. 
He called for a taxi to take him to a hotel on the other side of Manhattan and placed his cello, handcrafted in Vienna in 1733 and valued at $2.5 million, in the trunk of the taxi. When it reached his destination, he paid the driver, but forgot to take his cello. After the cab had disappeared, Yo-Yo Ma realised what he had done. He began a desperate search for the missing instrument. Fortunately, he had the receipt with the cabbie's ID number. After searching all day, the taxi was located in the garage in Queens, with the priceless cello still in the trunk. Yo-Yo Ma's smile could not be contained as he spoke to reporters, and the Chicago Tribune made a comment on that. Here's the point. Yo-Yo Ma did not quit, but persisted, because what was lost was too valuable to give up on. What was lost was too valuable to give up on. The spiritually lost are too valuable for us to quit trying to reach, even though our efforts do not pay off quickly. And so the third thing needed to reach the lost is persistence. So in summary, the religious leaders of the day had been indifferent towards the lost and even antagonistic towards them coming to Jesus. Jesus uses these two parables to illustrate how wrong their response was, especially when compared to how they would have responded towards recovering something of far lesser value. Jesus pointed out how joyful they would have been at the recovery of a lost sheep or lost coin. Certainly then they should have been joyous instead of, of angered at the lost coming to Jesus. Jesus then pointed out that the one thing that matters most to God is the lost. They matter so much to God that when the lost are found, even one of them, all heaven rejoices and throws a party. There's more joy over one sinner coming to Jesus than over 99 people being right where they, they're supposed to be with God. If lost people matter this much to God, shouldn't they matter this much to us? Shouldn't we be willing to give everything in order to reach them? My answer is yes, and I hope yours is also. What is needed to reach the lost? Well, from this passage, we discovered at least three things required for reaching the lost. Compassion, effort, and persistence. We hope you enjoyed the message. Please subscribe and leave a rating and review to help others find our podcast. At GCS, our mission is to communicate the gospel message relevantly to every person in the world. One way we do this is by providing practical resources to help you grow in your faith and present the Christian faith across different cultures. You can find out more about our resources at www.greatcommissionsociety.com. If you would like to donate to our efforts, be sure to contact us, or you can donate online. GCS is a listener-supported ministry and is chaired by a board of directors in Edinburgh, UK.